0: I know people who've cried after hearing Sweet Tooth, and I'm just like, yeah, well, you know, (laughs) okay. Why are you crying? Mm. Why? And it's fine, you don't have to tell me. Ask yourself Mm. and answer for yourself.
1: Hello, and welcome to Boreales Santala a new podcast diving into the archives of conversations with composers, artists and musicians at Boreales, a festival for experimental music in Bergen, Norway. I'm Vilde Tuve, and each month for this podcast, I'll be finding a new conversation to share with you. For this first episode, we're going to hear a conversation recorded in early March at our 2020 edition of the festival. It happened only a few days before Europe started to lock down because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And when we now look back to that time, it feels like another world, the conversation which lasts about an hour is between British vocalist and composer Elaine Mitchener and academic and writer Temi Ormosu. It followed the Scandinavian premiere of Elaine's piece Sweet Tooth, as we wanted to make space to reflect and react to the ideas in the performance. The conversation between Elaine and Temi started with a few words from festival artistic director Peter Meanwell.
2: I hope many of you were able to join us uh, last night for the Scandinavian premiere of Sweet Tooth by Elaine Mitchell. who sat with me here. Um, it's a work that was as creative and brilliantly executed as it was powerful and disturbing. Um, it's a work I've been thinking about for a long time, and I've seen videos of and I've heard recordings of, but the impact of being physically present in that space last night with the musicians was uh, felt uh, immensely important and hugely overwhelming. Actually, that's what I came up with. Um, So I'd like to extend my thanks to Elaine uh, again, as well as to Sylvia Hallett, Mark Sanders, and Jason Yard for their performance. Thank you very much. Just a show of hands, how many people here were at the performance last night? Just so I can get a sense of... Good, okay. So for those of you who weren't, sorry. You (laughs) (laughs) you missed something good. But um, just to recap what it was, uh, Sweet Tooth is a cross-disciplinary music theatre piece uh, that uses text improvisation and movement to stage a dramatic engagement with the brutal realities of slavery as revealed by historical records of the British sugar industry and uh, to eliminate its contemporary echoes so it was commissioned in the UK where Elaine uh, lives um, and Elaine's joined on stage by a trio of acclaimed musicians from the improv and jazz worlds uh, to bring to life this text that draws on deep historical research so that's from a traditional Jamaican plantation chant to a Kamina invocation song transcribed in the in Jamaica in the 1950s uh, to a list of names forced upon enslaved Africans taken from the inventory of plantation owner Simon Taylor and his diaries in Jamaica in 1813. Um, So that's what you missed for those who, who didn't see it. Um, When Elaine and I first spoke about bringing this work to Norway, um, one of the questions that we had was, was, you know, what would the context change? This was made in the UK, specifically performed in places that had a relation to, say, the sugar trade, and coming from these kind of personal histories and national histories. Until recently, to be honest, I was aware of Norway's uh, colonial history in regard to the indigenous Sami people in the north of the land, but the idea that Norway had a colonial past in regards to West Africa and the Caribbean was, to be honest, a surprise to me. It's not something I'd heard discussed and perhaps the Nordic nations are not considered part of this history uh, more generally. So Elaine started by sharing some research she'd found uh, on on Norway, and we followed up with Per Hernes, Professor Emeritus at the Department of Historical Studies at NTNU in Trondheim, Um, and he pointed us in the direction of more research and more writing. Uh, So for over 100 years, Norwegians could be found staffing the forts that held enslaved people on the African coast, sailing the ships that transported enslaved people to the Caribbean, as well as transporting the products of the labor of enslaved people back to Europe. So this is not to kind of say bad Norway, but it is to say that our histories here in Norway are also entwined intimately with the histories of enslaved people. Professor Hernes also gave us one more surprise, and i I just quote from an email he sent me. In the mid-1670s, Bergen-based merchant Jürgen Tormullen sent his ship Cornelia to West Africa on two occasions and had plans to send several further exhibitions to take part in the gold and slave trade. In fact, he was the first Danish-Norwegian ship to to forcibly take enslaved people. So that's 103 people on that first voyage uh, to the Danish colony St. Thomas in the Caribbean. Um, In the 1690s, Tomerlin leased trade and administration of the colony St. Thomas, which is part of the U.S. Virgin Islands today, from the Danish West India and Guinea Company. He expected to be entitled to a monopoly over the import of enslaved Africans to the island's sugar plantations. However, the Copenhagen directors of the company gave these privileges to the so-called Brandenburger Company, and Tomerlin actually lost out and went bankrupt. So... There we go. Right, <laughs> so, uh, so there we go. Um, but this was a really powerful revelation to me. I've lived in Bergen for five years now, almost six years, and Molenpreis is a city district I know well. So I didn't realize that it was an area of the city founded by Jürgen Tomolen, uh, and he gave his name, Tomolen, Uh So he was one of Norway's first uh, people trading in enslaved peoples. Uh, and he also lived at Kronstadt Hovordgård, which is a very popular wedding venue in the city as well um, now. So I, all of a sudden, for me, kind of finding out these facts, the brutal history of the transatlantic enslavement trade suddenly was not so far from home here in Bergen. And I think that's uh, our histories, again, are intimately entwined. The physical being of our city is intimately entwined with these histories whether we knew it or not. And I think that's something we can talk about. And perhaps this is something that made the performance last night even more powerful to receive. Um, So to think a bit more about what this work means, what Elaine's work means, and in general, I think how music can relate to the history of the transatlantic enslavement trade, um, and the way that art can function to evoke and heal this trauma, I'm delighted to introduce Tami Odemosu to have this conversation with Elaine here. Temi is an art historian, a curator and senior lecturer in cultural studies at Malmö University in Sweden and author of the book Africans in English Caricature. 1769 to 1819, Black Jokes, White Humour. Um, her research and curatorial practices are concerned with visual coding, colonial archives and archiving, post-memorial art and performance, and ethics and care in visual representation. Uh, and you may have heard Temi speak last year when the writer Paul Gilroy was awarded the Holberg Prize in a, in a series of uh, speeches at the of Island. If you didn't, go on YouTube and find it, it's very good. Um, And I think probably overall Temi's work focuses on the ways that art can mediate social transformation and healing. So I'm going to just hand over to Temi and Elaine and let them have this conversation for the next 45 minutes-ish. Let's see how it goes. (laughs) And then we're going to open the floor to questions uh, for the rest of the time. So please do welcome Temi Odomosu and Elaine Michener.
3: (laughs) Is it on already? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow. <laughs> uh hello everyone and, and thank you for, for joining us. It's it's great that a lot of you saw Elaine's piece yesterday. So I wanted to begin by first asking you how you're feeling.
0: Very tired. Mm-hmm. Very tired. Emotionally drained. The physical aches and pains are parts and parcel of of working in that way. So I, I have a slight backache but that's kind of that's not bad. It's just an ache. And then whenever I, I feel like moaning about feeling tired, I think about real tiredness mm. and real pain. What this piece is about, those that endured it, have endured it, and people who continue to endure it. So then I stop moaning about it. And somehow yeah. the tiredness evaporates. But I feel energised as well. And last night was very moving for all of us uh, presenting... The work. Many thanks to those of you who came on the journey last night because it is a journey and uh, you don't have to do it. It's more than just buying the ticket or being given the ticket. And, okay, that sounds interesting. <laughs> because you really don't know what you're letting yourselves in for. And I'm prepared for people to get up and leave.
4: Mm-hmm. In fact,
0: that has happened yeah. in performances. People just can't deal with it. It's either sonically too unusual and too arresting and too strange or physically too upsetting to behold. But those who steer the course and stick with it, I guess you guys feel as tired as I do. I hope you do. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. just there was this kind of release. We were talking about it this morning. But yeah. I could feel I, we are we're doing what we do, but we're also very aware of the energy that is coming from the audience. I'm very sensitive to that. And we need it. And we need your focus. And I demand it. I'm, I'm quite ruthless in that way. Um, so I won't let anyone get away with just kind of sitting back and just, okay, show me what you've got. Because you will get that and much more. But I'm demanding your focus. And I really felt that. It was very powerful. Mm. So... Um, Thank you for, for, for being there, really, and to the festival for bravely hosting this piece because even in the space, it has its history as well and it felt like the right place mm. to present it. Um, yeah. I'm tar- yeah, I'm just thinking, I'm tired because I couldn't sleep because I was too high energy afterwards, so I was awake mm. until about 2 a.m., yeah. trying to sleep. and um, But that's just, that's part of it. I'm very happy. Yeah. yeah.
3: I-, I wanted to begin with um, the effects mm-hmm. of doing this work, mm-hmm. in part because I kind of interpreted and engaged with your art as part of a black radical performance tradition. And maybe we'll talk a little bit later about how your work is bridging performance art, visual art, and experimental music, which is not my field at all. But I felt very at home in the space that you had created and with the language that you were using. So I know that endurance or long-form practices that in some respects restage or reenact historical pain structures are part of this black radical performance tradition. And so... I know that they must have some kind of effect, and I just wanted you to reflect on that also. Yes,
0: well, the piece itself took about five years uh, to make in terms of research, the initial idea, um, which came out of uh, a traumatic experience, of one of grief and loss, and then trying to find ways to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And it was losing uh, my father and... Thinking about what connected us, which was our sweet tooth. And um, I was thinking about sugar and particular particular product from sugar, which is tablet. And for anyone who's Scottish, Scottish heritage, been to Scotland, I see all in nodding. So you know how addictive it is. Tablet is like fudge, but it's more crumbly. And it's a Scottish sweet, and everyone has it in Scotland. And a friend introduced it to me, and I became addicted to it and shared it with my dad, who said nothing sweeter than sugar cane. He's from Jamaica. Of course he's going to say that. He said, but you haven't tasted tablets And I gave it to him, he became addicted, I became a tablet dealer, (laughs) okay? So it was uh, thinking about these things that kind of to cheer me up, that time when I was very, very distraught. But then I had to think more deeply about this substance, this thing, and Scotland's involvement. I mean, out of that research thinking, okay, uh, the Scottish were the great administrators of the transatlantic sugar trade, And the English took a lot of the rap for the wealth that was acquired, but Scotland became wealthy from it. And I thought, this substance, which is actually so bad for you, sugar is really bad. We all know that now, and it's killing people. It is actually killing people. The people died in making it, and they had to make more of it because to feed an addiction in countries not connected to the place where these plantations were. And so it has a very dark history. And I thought, well, what can I do with this? Because also the history I was taught at school, it kind of glossed over a lot of things. There were lots of things that were left out. I knew much more about what happened in America in terms of slavery. I was very lucky that my parents took it upon themselves to educate myself and my siblings about the history of Jamaica and what happened there but i i wasn't taught any of that at school and so as i delved deeper and tried to make sense of all this information i think i needed to speak to a historian and check my facts it was just overwhelming but i realized there was a lot of things that i had been carrying because of that things that i hadn't even been able to verbalize or address or talk about there was something that happened Actually, I am just thinking about the conversation this morning, but there's a thing that happens if, where you, if you're in a group, if in a group, it's a mixed group, ethnically mixed. If there are people of color, they are just use that term, and particularly black people, if something happens and they clock an incident, they don't necessarily say anything and they look. And they might look at it and you understand what's being said but you don't have to say it. And this happens with strangers. It's happened to me with strangers like, yeah, I got that, I got that, you got that. Okay, right, and then we move on and we never talk. And someone said to me years ago, that's because we had to learn to communicate without speech. Mm -hmm. Because if you spoke, something would happen, there'd be retribution and you don't, and I I was thinking, what do they mean? I thought, this is something that's innate. And that fascinates me. So that's why the piece "The Sweet Tooth deals with sound. It deals with how sound can evoke fear or inspire resilience, It can give you confidence. You are lost for words. That's why there's, there aren't many words. And when words are in the piece, it's there for a particular reason. When we grieve, when we are angry, when we're happy, we don't need words to say. I'm happy. I'm upset. I'm sad. It's our body language. It's how we. It's the sounds of our voices that project these emotions. So, I was able to mine all these ideas and carry it. And I'm thinking about. I'm. I'm also feeling that I'm carrying the sounds from the past and bringing them to the present. So that when you know, growing up, we were talking about cooking earlier, and you know, that's not just, you said your grandmother, but it's your grandmother's mother and her mother's... And this is for everyone. And these things are really important because it's heritage, it's culture, it's heritage, it's what makes us who we are. Mm-hmm. And it's reconnecting that and how that affects our present. And so that's what Sweet Tooth is about. It's mm-hmm. it's not a historical piece. It's a very, it's a It's a piece for now. Mm-hmm. And it's for us to think about how we are now because of how we were then and what has happened in the past. I don't know if yeah. that answered the question.
3: It does in a very beautiful way that it then provides lots of legs <laughs> to go in so many different, it's a networked answer. Um, but, I, I, but I wanted to because I don't want these women to just be here without contextualization. so we are looking at an image from the National Maritime Museum in Helsingør in Denmark and it represents uh, a group of women Um, who are at a a children's home on the island of St. Croix in 1910, when the islands were still under Danish colonial rule. It would be another seven years before Denmark sold St. Croix, St. Thomas and St. John to the United States for $25 million in gold. Um, So we thought we would put this uh, photograph here also as context um, because I think context is really interesting, you know, how when you're talking about positioning and past and present and who is connected and who owns this story, and I mean, arguably this is a, a shared cultural, it's a planetary inheritance, yes. in fact, and depending on who you are reading and the way in which you are thinking about colonialism and structures of um, what is the word when you're kind of mining and drilling for things. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that word is—it's going to come. Um, extraction. Thank you. Oh God, <laughs> it's Saturday. Um, so these extractive uh, colonial cultures, which which connect sugar to coal to gold to coltan, meaning that we are all implicated, um, whether it's a, a short connection or a long, deep connection. But having um, these women um, uh, behind us. Um, and this audience in front of us in a way perfectly articulates how the transmission of your particular performance went, that you were sort of carrying this ancestral um, archive with you. And so I, I was really interested in you speaking a bit more about your own body, your own your own being as as a repository of memory and history and how you see your role as a kind of caretaker or a custodian or, a, or a, a medium through which an audience can connect to those who have gone before
0: yeah it's, um, it's a heavy responsibility, and I felt um, you feel that burden as well to I felt the, I felt it's a burden and a, and also an honor to to honor these the ancestors those people in the past who have endured this. It's because of them that's why I'm here,
4: mm-hmm.
0: number one. They're, they're survivors, they're strong people, there's this mixed heritage, and I celebrate that. It's not that Sweet Tooth isn't a victim piece.
4: Mm-hmm. It's
0: not, It's it addresses these dark and difficult issues, but also it presents, it shows the possibilities and what has come from it. Mm-hmm and what we all can enjoy and have celebrated as well, this heritage, it's very rich heritage. And, but in terms of embodiment, um, there's a lot of processing that needs to go on. And in interpreting the information and finding ways to interpret it and to present it, I mean, there were so many difficulties because I didn't want things to be gratuitous at all. Um and want it wanted to be kind of porn,
4: mm-hmm.
0: you know. And the the section that was a challenge, which is scramble, which is where there's four of us standing together, and you see me examining my body, but I'm not examining my body, I am being examined and I am being abused. And Seeing those fo- that this photo actually and um, it just reminded me of something because this what was really interesting in all the books that I read many of the books I read were written by men mm-hmm. histor-
4: yeah.
0: and the female narrative isn't as strong but that is changing because we have more female uh, historians. Who are focusing on that aspect of world history. And Bell Hooks was really important in my research because she very directly just spells it out yeah. about the experience of enslaved African women on plantations and what they went through and what they had to endure. Not just from the slaveholders, but also from their own enslaved African men and what that does, how psychologically, the psychological trauma from that, and how that instability of status, how that affects the present, mm-hmm. and relationships between men and women, black men and women,
4: mm-hmm.
0: or if you are a black man with a non-black partner or vice versa, all those things are played out but we don't realise with the tensions that we might feel or what communities might feel. Sometimes, you know, now we're not thinking, why, why do I feel that way? Why am I, why am I looking at that couple? Why, 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 why won't this person talk to me or why my family disowned me or whatever? It's going back. It's just to do with what's happened in the past because it's, it's, it's there. It's affected us at such a deep level. We don't even realise it. Mm. And so in Scramble, I was thinking about this physical abuse and emotional abuse as well and being dehumanized by the way i am being examined to see if i'm how if i'm worth the value because the scramble was you paid your price you took a rope the door was opened it was filled with with those who survived the middle passage and you, the slaveholder would take a rope and gather up as many it could. And so we, we probably know more about the auction blocks that happened. There weren't auction blocks in the Caribbean in the same way as in, in America. No, was, yeah. So, but, and because Sweet Tooth is about what happened, particularly in Jamaica, because I was working with material from that, I felt it was really important because that's something that I was never taught
4: mm-hmm. at
0: school. And because of... The Commonwealth and the links and you know, royalty and blah blah blah. I think it's important to know why these things happened and how they happened. Mm. Um, and so, as a woman, who we talk about safe space, we talk about safe spaces earlier. There was no safe space because you weren't a, you were dehumanised. So you weren't a person. You didn't have feelings. You were you were a product, and you were out to work, at regardless of your condition. And if the slaveholder wanted you sexually, there was nothing you could do. And they would cast you aside, or you may, if you survived it.
4: Hmm.
0: But it could, you would, you weren't, you... I mean, I can't imagine what that's like, but that happens now. That's still happening now. Hmm. And so that... It's really, that, that moment is really hard for me to do, mm-hmm. but it has to be done, because I think we need to know, mm-hmm. and I have to feel it. And when I was working with the choreographer, Dom Van Hoon, who's an American, Vietnamese-American, we, and he has his own very interesting stories to tell, he said, you can't do this
3: in a soft-soap way, you have to go there. And that's and Bell Hooks says it's in milit- militancy is an alternative to madness. Yes, right. That you just have to you, you turn up. Just, yeah, absolutely. Um, otherwise, there's no
0: point. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also disturbing because it's 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 traumatic, but it's also sexual. Mm. So if if the reaction from the audience, if someone feels disturbed by being sexually stimulated by what they're seeing, of course, Mm. because it's sexual as well as being violent.
3: Mm. I've been thinking um, there is a performance um, study scholar, Rebecca Schneider, who has written many books about performance, but one called Performing Remains, which is about art and life in times of historical reenactment. And she ask the question about gesture and how, whether a gesture of a modern-day performer, like a historical reenactment, or in your Mm -hmm. case, um, the way in which you touched your body, not as yourself, but as an an inspecting individual that we Mm -hmm. can't see, right? Um, Whether that gesture can itself be a, a historical trace, right, of something that once was. So you, in other words, your own body becomes... Uh, primary archival material for what once what once was rather than having to go into an official archive. That, that, that your gestures, your movements, the way in which you touch your body, the way in which you uh, have a communion with these ancestors but then at the same time articulate other things that maybe have not even been spoken of, that that in itself is a trace of something that, that once was. Does that make sense?
0: It does make sense. Uh, I guess...
3: Uh... I'm kind of getting a bit deep into the, like... Yeah,
0: yeah no, no, it's... <laughs> who are you? <laughs> no, I know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's... Yeah, I think it does, and also as, as as a someone who performs lots of different works, in order to communicate the truth of those pieces, you have to tap into things that perhaps are very personal mm. and have been lived mm. in order to enable mm. those actions and um, you can't be afraid to do that mm. if you really if you really believe in what you're doing you just have to go there otherwise don't do it don't be up there don't don't
3: present yourself yeah i'm um, so your for me your work was haunting but also there is there was a kind of on the level of scenography or choreography, there was a kind of spectral quality to some of the things that happened in the room. I I was sitting at the back um, and there were moments where the shadows that you uh, and all the other performers were making on the wall also produced another kind of uh, image world which was connected to what was happening in the space, but also something else, especially the, the moment where you were Holding your mouth open. Oh yes. And yeah. you came to the back and you turned around you at, walked and I looked and I thought, Oh my God, that was like that then I sort of understood Kara Walker's work in another kind of way, in that moment. Yeah. That looking at the shadows and the silhouettes. But you but you brought them alive. It was it was very profound but painful. But at the same time I recognized that there was more than us in this space. Yes,
0: there. yeah, and that's really important to me, and I'm really glad that you, you saw that, and I don't know if anyone else spotted it. I'm really aware of presences. I'm evoking, I'm bringing, I am bringing these ancestor, ancestral spirits
3: yeah.
0: to life, and that's why there's a heavy presence in that room, yeah. and those shallows and silhouettes evoke that. Um, I really wanted... Um, to reanimate the space um, and to change it by okay. doing that, so that we we are present in that moment that we are, we are taken somewhere else yeah. as well. So we're not in the historic building; we are in this actuality of what was happening, yeah. and um, it's really powerful. Um, and it's also dangerous as well. There's this kind of danger around about it, which I I, I like, because um, I don't know what the reaction's going to be as well. I mean, yeah. it's. I mean, I'm sorry for any of you that were at the front row, <laughs> and anyone that came that I came near. I'm sorry, I don't recognise anyone. That's apart from all and and uh, <laughs> Will, hello, um, but I didn't see you in the crowd. So, um, but I wasn't. I mean, it's. It has to be in your face. Mm-hmm. It has to be. I'm thinking about, um, I don't know if, if any of you have been to the Caribbean before, but it's the, I mean, across all the islands, they're all so unique, but they're such a beautiful place.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And I was thinking about this beauty, and I'm thinking about the green in the piece. Um, it's this beauty and this horror happening. Mm-hmm. At the same time. And I, I think Steve McQueen really worked with that in 12 Years a Slave. Yeah. Where there were these scenes where it's just so beautiful. But then there's this horror happening. Yeah. At the same time. And you just think, how? Yeah. How? You can't enjoy any of that. But there was so much death as well. Yes. Yes. And so that's why these presences are there. Because mm-hmm. lives were lost every day. Yeah. And they weren't considered people, so they just restocked. That's why they kept crossing the waters and bringing them mm. back. Mm. I don't know if people are aware of the infant mortality rate. That's why this photo is really poignant. The infant mortality rate was so high on plantations. It's quite a lot of people think that babies were born on plantations, born to slavery, and grew old. No, mm. many died. They mostly died. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why they had to restock with adults.
4: Mm
0: -hmm. And one of the reasons why the mortality rate was, of course, malnutrition, but also the mothers couldn't feed their own child and had to wet nurse Mm -hmm. plantation owner's child. So if you can imagine, this is like a triple trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, Being sexually violated. And then you can't keep your own child alive. Mm. And you have to keep someone else's child alive. And those things... You know, I hadn't thought... I wasn't expecting to come across that information. Mm. But when I did, I thought, I have to use... This is so important. Mm. This is vital. Because this is stuff that we don't get taught. We don't know about. And I think, I come from a lineage of women who've survived this, I'm here because of that. Mm-hmm. So I have to honour them.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So like this presence is, and this is just evoking, it's there, it's there, they're there. Mm-hmm. They never leave, they never leave me. And when, for those of you who come on that journey, they are there with you
4: mm-hmm.
0: as well.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I was... Um, I don't want to be too, like, the theory person. I'm, like, never the theory person. Oh, trust me. In my life, I'm never the theory person. But when you are in a performance and, like, you know, Tina Kemp and Fred Moten and Saidiya and Hartman and all these people's words come to you like, what? Okay. Then you realise, you're, okay, you're also... Yeah. That, 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 uh, that the theory is alive. Yes. You know, so I was thinking a lot about Saidiya Hartman's comments and not just in her book, Lose Your Mother, which is about her journey around the transatlantic enslavement route, but also an essay called Venus in Two Acts, yeah. um, where she asks these questions about ethics of, of connecting to, with the dead. You know, she's looking, she's a historian uh, and she's, and I was reading her when I was also doing historical research and you're looking at these records uh, and she asks these questions like, you know, how does one tell a story about an encounter with nothing. Meaning that you know, you're know you often looking at um, uh, people who have been reduced to things, but also going to sites of memory where there's nothing there. Mm. And yet you know that there is a memory there that needs to be filled. But she also asks this question about, can, can beauty provide an, an antidote to dishonor and love a way to exhume buried cries and reanimate the dead? So I wanted to ask you about this exhuming of buried cries in relation to music and sound. Because of course, this is a, uh, an experimental music festival. <laughs> I'm the one that's out of my discipline, not you. Uh, so um, I, I wanted to ask you to sort of reflect on the sort of sonics of slavery and, and, and what you are evoking sonically um, in yeah. your piece. Um,
0: yes, I come from a background that's very pretty mixed. Yes, I'm a free improviser. I also am a classically trained singer and work in contemporary new music for my sins, occasionally. And, um, and, you know, you have these different influences, but when it came to this piece, I was able to really explore a different kind of sonic environment um, because I'm really interested in what words can't do. And the lack of words, so um, in there's in the beginning of the piece, which I've called "Universal slide," because I think this is this is our this is this involves everyone. Mm. you know we can't extract us of all if that had to do with their history, it's got nothing to do with me. No, we are all complicit in all this. we are part of it, and it affects every one of us, and it has done. And so there's that rage and the rage of loss and the rage of how we can allow ourselves to do this to another human being and um, give, allow this voice to come out um, in any which way that it does. And I ask the instrumentalists to be vocal with their instruments because I believe a, an instrument is a voice as well, and for those who play instruments, there's that whole thing of, yeah, there, the voice is the ultimate instrument uh, well, perhaps <laughs> <laughs> but, well, yes it is, no, no but that's another conversation, but I wanted them to think to apply this approach of their voices because they I'm not asking apart from actually Sylvia who does work with has always worked with her voice and did remarkable things and does does remarkable things with her voice as well and Jason who isn't a singer um, he does use his voice at some in some aspects yeah. of it but I said think your words need to be expressed through the instruments. So it becomes vocal, so any sounds that we make in the space when we're taking the bambas, this is we are speaking, we yeah. are being vocal so and the and so it's it's those voices we are speaking the we're telling the story we are we are the conduits of our ancestors, we are speaking our rage, we are speaking our horror, we are shouting resilience. Conspiring being conspiratorial, we are talking about revolt, we are going to affect change, and it 's all done through the instruments and it's, we talked a lot about how to to manage the sounds because also i 'm asking them to improvise i have very I had a very clear idea of the sound worlds that I wanted for each section and what we needed to explore, so I knew what was right and what was wrong but i 'm not Kind of draconians. No, no, no. Just this way only. Um, I'm really open to to their suggestions, and we worked and devised different mechanisms to to find the correct sound worlds as a as a starting point to further mm. sonic exploration. Mm. And things. I mean, things changed. For example, we had. Thank you for providing the the. Bam- bamboo sticks, Borealis Festival, they were perfect. But Mark needed to cut his down because he uses them on his kit. So he asked for a saw. So the venue provided a saw. He gave it to Sylvia, who just took it and started playing the saw. Because she plays the saw. And I said, yes. Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah in the invocation. And we'd never done it before. Mm. It had never been, it, the saw was not used in previous performances. So it's about being open to that, you know. So it was that happy kind of coincidence that the saw was produced, it was the right saw. I now know that the you need a cheap saw to make a good sound. Okay, That's, uh, <laughs> uh, that was a real lesson learned <laughs> in the stress of everything. And I said, that would be great because the invocation comes back again, and there's a reason why I'm mentioning invocation because it's about ancestral spirits yeah. and it's a song. Um, and I thought this is perfect this is what we need. this is what we needed. We needed that voice without it sounding kind of space-like, but actually I didn't mind the kind of futuristic sound mm-hmm. of it as well, because it, it transported
4: mm-hmm.
0: us to the future whilst being in the past. So there was all these... And so we could work with that. And there wasn't... A, it's not a settled tonality. And so it, this instability... Because I wanted this watery sound because I'm singing the text from a kumina. Camino. Camino is a, is, um, a language um, that was spoken in the parish of St. Thomas and uh, in Jamaica. And those people um, were... Well, the, mainly Maroons who were seen as runaway enslaved Africans and they had their own very strong community and they had a very, a communa was also a religion and it has very strong roots in West Africa so there's a mix of West African text and um, English as spoken by uh, Jamaicans of that time and I took got that text from Kamal Brathwaite mm. and he's fantastic who he recently passed away she's yeah. like oh no and his fantastic book History of the Voice and he talks about the language across the Caribbean as nation language, it's not broken English it's its own language and he's absolutely right mm. but what fascinated me about this particular song is it's talking about woman, Jenny, a character, and the ancestral water spirits calling her. Mm-hmm. And she's happy to be called by them, and she greets them. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of love. It's almost like a lullaby. Mm-hmm. And it's a lullaby of death, but also of release. And it's so, so I find it a very positive thing to sing, because mm-hmm. it's, I'm, I imagine that my character through Sweet Tooth needed to remind themselves of that song that yeah. would have been sung to them by her mother or her father who yeah. finds herself in this situation. And um, I was so pleased to come across this text because I thought that's a connection and this is something that's been passed on from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And Sadly, there are fewer people who know this language yeah. now and it will die out and this is not a unique thing to Jamaica it's happening across the world you know mm-hmm. so it's it's about holding on to these things and then representing them in other contexts so as a contemporary experimental artist i can do that mm-hmm. thus preserving this tradition in a new way
3: mm-hmm.
0: and communicating it to to people who probably wouldn't have
3: heard it before yeah before we open out to conversation, because I think it's super important that yeah. people in the room kind of feedback, um, I, as someone who's not in your zone at all, I didn't know the extent to which you were sort of pushing up against the edges of a concept of experimental music. I don't know, like, how are people in this scene <laughs> responding to this work? Well, we, we hopefully we'll Maybe hear we things yeah. As a starting
0: question. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I personally believe... That, well, for me, this piece has allowed me to really ex- to c- explore uh, musical ideas, sonic ideas that I'm unable to explore when I'm working with other music. Yeah. This is very much me. It's drawing on all these different influences, particularly cultural influences, and repurposing them in another way. They're very contemporary... Um, and I can be experimental with it because it is an experimental platform you mm. know the the sound worlds are i could I can go anywhere mm. and I feel I guess it goes comes back to what George Lewis is talking about realization and contemporary music and its place it does have its place, and there are people of color who are writing music that is representing them, who they are now, and it's also mining their culture
4: mm-hmm.
0: and sharing it in ways. And there is a space for it. There should be a place for it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And this is the time, this, this will have an effect on how music is enjoyed or experienced in the future. And it's, it's high time. I don't know if I rubbed up, I don't know if what people think of it actually. I, I, I don't care. Well, I do care. I do care. I do care, but I don't care that people like it. Mm. You don't have to like it, that's fine. I'm really interested, I said to some people yesterday, I'm really interested in people's reactions to things. Even if you don't like something, or even if you loved something, think about why you liked it. Think about why you you didn't like it. That's more important to me, that we reflect on our reactions to things. Because I know we all go to lots of concerts, and we hear, oh, it's amazing, it's fantastic. Why? Yeah. Why? Why was it? That's what interests me. Why? Because it's so easy just to say the nice things. It's much harder to think about why you felt that way. Mm. So I know people who've cried after hearing Sweet Tooth, and I'm just like, yeah, well, you know, (laughs) okay. Why are you crying? Mm. Why? And it's fine, you don't have to tell me. Ask yourself Mm. and answer for yourself. Opening out. Opening Ooh. out. <laughs> oh. um, I have a microphone here. Young man here. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, you are obviously a free improviser, and all of your fellow artists are improvisers as well. Um, but to what extent is the act of improvisation also a layer in this piece, a, a, a metaphor for being able to express yourself? or express these ideas in a certain way?
0: Um, it's a really important layer. It's, it's, I would describe this piece as structured improvisation. So there are pivotal moments. There are things that we have kept that has come out of imp, uh, an improvisatory moment that said, actually, it'd be really good. Let's keep that so we can pivot and we know where we are in the piece, because that's going to happen. This sound, we're going to hear this, or this phrase, we're going to hear that. And we're very good listeners. So for example, Mark made an instrumental change in Scold's Bridal, which is where you see these three duos. And he said, I want it to be a talking drum. He hadn't done that before. He wanted to change it sonically. And I was very happy with that. it's having the freedom to make the change, like Sylvia and the Saw. I need it. Because it keeps the piece fresh, because the conversations change. Mm-hmm. After We haven't performed this piece for a year, almost two years, and we got together to just brush the cobwebs off, and I wasn't sure, I thought it was gonna be a disaster. And it, it was fine, because we performed it enough in the past to know it, the structure of it. But in terms of the improvisation, I liked, I don't want to stipulate things too much and because I want us to be so present and in the moment and and using that moment for us to express in a really direct way. Because a lot has happened in the world since we first, we last performed it, which was May
4: 2018.
0: Mm. And as a British person, and I don't want to use the B word, so I'm going to go from skip past there, but I'm thinking about the immigration laws that have been brought in to kick people out who don't speak English and don't earn more than 25,000 pounds a year. And when you see how they're being described, those people are being referred to as stock mm. and how much they are worth. And when I read that two weeks ago, I thought, that's the inventory. That's Simon Taylor. That's right. That is Adam, yeah. man, field, able, 40 pounds. I never thought I would... Ha- it really upset me. And so I'm thinking about what's happening now, When I and that affects my improvisation, because that's what I'm communicating. So it's a really important layer it is an improvisatory piece but it's not a free improv where anything goes because I'm also a bit of a control freak and it's a piece and it needs to end it needs to be 50 minutes or an hour but you know if it was free improv we'd still be playing now. So <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and we would be on the floor with you. And we'd be <laughs> <laughs> did that answer the question? Um, I think Maybe I was not. I actually uh, just interested
3: in how the act of improvisation might be part of this context of, uh, of the, I uh, don't you know, there's a kind of notated uh, music versus different kinds of music. The fact that you're able to speak freely, uh, just don't get the speech behind. You. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well,
3: is so, the um, improvisation as a metaphor
0: for, for freedom. Yeah.
3: Mm. yeah. Well, that liberatory. Yeah. Lib- yeah.
0: it is it is important in that in very important in that respect. It's the thing that people can't that it's the thing that they tried to squash on those plantations. Mm-hmm. They would allow like in uh, guinea corn, they would have, that's the moment of kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. Freedom to and you know singing this song and it's also quite subversive because of what saying I'm gonna do with this corn though, you know. And but then that's curtailed, that is taken, that's snatched away because you're there to work, you're not there to have a good time. Or at the, towards the end of that, where Jason is playing and I'm just dancing, I'm not singing, I'm dancing and I'm going to drop hmm. because I'm being told to dance because it's no longer about me having the freedom to express myself physically. I'm now here to entertain.
4: Hmm.
0: You know. And it's those, it's, it plays on those th- freedoms, so the free improvisation is part of that because it's free and it's not.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And then we have to find another way. Mm-hmm. We have to keep finding another way to retain our humanity because that's what this piece is about as well. Those quiet, revolutionary acts.
5: Yeah. was that
0: helpful? Yes, great. <laughs>
5: Uh, Yes, I feel like we could talk forever. (laughs) Um, I don't know, there's so much to say, but um, I just wanted to um, point on one thing that I uh, thought of afterwards, uh, that uh, myself, I'm um, a big lover of... um, Crazy experimental music, and for me this was an yeah amazing or i don't know what word to use for it um way of um illustrating with illustrating is also a wrong word um um the connection with um, uh, surp- um suppression and slavery that where it comes from uh that was like yeah wow great to um, me and yeah so i i I want to say thank you so oh, thank much you. so much for yeah and, uh, um, one small question that is maybe not the most important but uh, um, why did you choose to to finish it the way you did with a like soft Singing, <laughs> or you know, it, it sounded a bit more like the classical. Or, yeah,
0: you know, uh, no, that's a good question because it originally it did. It it ended. Um, it ended after um, the anarchy and confusion, and and I didn't want to end it with the words of a slaveholder. It's as simple as that. And I wanted to remind myself of my ancestors and their strength. Because this, that song is, it's, the way I sang it might have sounded classical, but that was just the choice of that moment. Um, but it's to, if, to, to bring the piece to a more positive, more hopeful end as well. That's that I made that choice. Um, I mean, I, I like it, and it may change again. I might try a different approach, but at the moment, I'm 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 pretty happy with it because it's not exactly the same. It's not the same tune. It's when we the instrumentation has changed slightly, and I'm just thinking about Will, what you were saying about this freedom as well as that the improvisation provides. It means we can explore it in different ways the same song Mm -hmm. the same words Mm -hmm. because we now have done the journey and so it feels different Mm -hmm. it's not the same because I'm not the same from when I started to where I am yeah but thank you for coming and it was an important question
2: Thank you very much. Um, okay. I, I was wondering, you, both, you mentioned Bell Hooks, both of you, um, and, and this idea, Elaine, that you weren't taught this history in school, and I think we've considered that we might not be taught this history here and in the Nordic Nations as well. And I wondered what, if you could reflect, both of you, on what kind of, whether art is filling a gap here, where education really should be doing a job, or and. If it is, what would what would you want to change? What would that radical education model look like?
3: Tell <laughs> <laughs> me. It's difficult to know where begin where to begin with that um, answer because your your piece began with a, a dissonance mm-hmm. sonically, mm-hmm. and I kind of feel that that is what is required. Um, in an educational context, a kind of dissonance, a a disconnection from what we think we know, how we think we should learn. I mean, I was trained in Britain. You know, I was brought up in Britain. I went to British schools. I have had a colonial education, probably one slightly similar to my parents' colonial education in colonial Nigeria before independence. Um, So the way in which even, even this modality of us being on a elevated stage and speaking to an audience out there and you listen and you nod and you reflect. Mm-hmm. But you, we have to figure out how to relate to one another on the level of energy as well as uh, linguistically or intellectually. I mean, all of that needs to be disturbed and unsettled. Um, so from my perspective, when I, if I'm collaborating with an artist or I'm in dialogue with an artist's work, it's also to unsettle. Um, and to and to and to and to explore things that um, or to to for me art art is useful also when theory fails or the, the the logical information that we get out of textbooks or even the archive itself no longer has the words to express um, but it's very tr- it's tricky to answer that question because like coloniality is so like embedded in everything. Um, um, On the one hand, it's important for people to understand uh, what happened, historically speaking, with some degree of accuracy. On the other hand, you know, um, and Saida Hartman makes this point also in her work, you know, if you spend a lot of time sitting in this archive and reading, you know, Thomas Thistlewood's diary Um, from Jamaica where he's describing, you know, Himself defecating in enslaved people's mouths as a form of punishment. This is at the Beinecke Library in Yale. That particular manuscript. I mean, if you, if you, do we really want to know? It at to, at, at what, what is the level of intensity required to communicate what happened enough for us to understand that it should not happen again. So that is also where I am right now about the ethics of how much to show, how much to tell, do I need to... And I'm using the work of um, people who work on Holocaust atrocity, also um, scholars of this kind, um, Marianne Hirsch and and Susan Crane and other people uh, who are thinking about the extent to which we stand in the perpetrator's gaze by way of our encounter with... uh, troubling and traumatic material. So I'm kind of in different spaces in terms of answering your question. I think it's important that people know and know in a good way. Um, But what we do with that knowledge is the next step. This isn't about, you know, pornography, like you said, trauma or pain pornography.
2: Yeah,
0: I agree, actually. I agree because I had to make really careful decisions about what material I was going to draw on, how I was going to use that material, because I didn't want to lift, for example, Simon Taylor. I just didn't want him to be on a pedestal, because it's not about him. The piece is not about him. In fact, the historian that I worked with, Krista DePetzley, he was really, he said, look, you know, just... He was an awful man. He was an awful man. And he did awful things. You know, I don't want to raise him. I just, no, don't worry, he's not going to be lifted on a pedestal. So what I wanted to convey was his paranoia for losing, as he knew that he would lose his wealth, he would lose control. Mm-hmm. And things were going to change. There was nothing he was going to do about it, which is why I've left, left him mm-hmm. to the end. But it's that, you're right, we have to be so careful how much of that information we want to share and how we want to convey it. And if it's necessary to convey everything and how it's done and carefully handled. Because not everyone's ready to receive it as mm-hmm. well.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um,
3: and also yes, because, I you know, and I, I, I've spent almost nine years living in Scandinavia now. Between Denmark and Sweden. And doing a lot of talking and telling about colonialism and showing of the archives. So it's not as if like I'm making this stuff up, right? But still receiving this kind of energy like, ah, but that is the past, but you're being too sensitive. You know, like these these but-butts, as if somehow this knowledge is going to change the way I think about you as a human being in the now. So I'm not making a value judgment. I'm not saying you're a bad person in the now just because your ancestors did some really crazy things. However, we do have to take collective accountability because those structures and ways of knowing, but more importantly, those ways of feeling, connecting, relating, Um, they map on to our contemporary experience. So we're carrying them into the future. So this is actually a futurist project. I understand what you're doing as a futurist project, not as a history, yeah. you know, like, and, 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 and so it's there that I'm like, okay, yeah. what do we do? Next question. <laughs> Was that an answer, by the way? A useful one. We
6: didn't say anything about art and how amazing art but I was going say. Yes, there's a question. I think this is about, well, it's not about sound art, <laughs> well, it's about the piece. Um, and it relates uh, really, you were kind of starting to cover a, a question, maybe a bit that I wanted to put in answering Peter's question. Um, because uh, I was really fascinated by the materiality of the thing. The simplicity of the the means that were that were there, no costume, very little. Somebody talked about the shadows, very simple. But it was really about the materiality of sound and body, mm. and getting rid of anything else, any kind of uh, decorative stuff that might make the thing more palatable or more fun, you know. <laughs> yeah. But also, you talked. I mean, I felt safe. Actually, you were coming up really close to me quite a lot. You're obviously <laughs> concentrating very hard. Um, but I felt, I felt on the one hand safe and in the audience and on the other hand deeply right in there. That seems to me like a super difficult um, uh, kind of tightrope to walk. And right at the beginning, you know, I have a violin and a voice right in my... You know, so there's a lot of... The, go, go straight in. <laughs> and it was really like that all the way through. But I felt that the the balance between this, that also you were describing something that was deeply traumatic, but it was also about strength. You know, it was and it wasn't about victimhood. It was about the strength you're talking about. This, you know, from survivors. You know, um, and I'm just wondering. You say it took you five years to make the piece, or it started to the inception was began five years ago. I would be really interested to know if there were things. That happened along the way in the process that you got rid of, because or how did you get to that point where you managed to walk such an incredibly fine tightrope with the means? Is there like a one example you could give me of something that didn't work, let's say, or something that you realised was too one way or the other? Yeah, I can because um,
0: we had a workshop with the historian who, to his horror, ended up performing with us. <laughs> um, which was I hilarious. It was, it, was, it was. I mean, he's like, "Oh yeah," I said, like, "Yeah, but you know, you're you're going to be on stage with us," and he's like, yeah. it's like, yeah, don't worry, we'll look after you." And so, as you know, kind of musicians, we do, we kind of save a thing, a few things back until. Okay, well, I, you know, I'm a bit of a show pony, right? And I'm, say, I'm saying it to you, Owen, because I know you are as well, right? So you won't take... You take back the spirit of love, right? Okay. Because when the lights... When when there's something about the space and it's just... It's very sacred to me, a performance space, and I've become very serious at it. And this it's just... It's not about me. It's about delivering the message. And for Krista... He was he was in complete shock um, when we actually presented it because we were very relaxed. Oh yeah, we'll do a bit of this, we'll do a bit of that, and we go. Ah. And then when the it happened, everybody was just like completely engaged. And I'm mentioning it because there was something to do with sugar. We actually had these bags of sugar, and originally I wanted to do this action where we were just pouring these sugar glasses of sugar. Just point from one glass to the next, and it was. Yeah. To, it looked. It looked pretty. It sounded kind of interesting, you know. And I was like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And, I said, and I realised actually, no, it's a bit pants. It's too yeah. easy. It's too easy. Do you know? I mean, but that was a really one, nice example. But do you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like It was just first bit of research, and you have to do the R and D. You have to. You have to do the R and D. You've got to research. You've got to develop the ideas. You've got to try it out before you can really present it publicly. But then you also have to be really critical and have good critical friends who will say, you know, that was just a bit shit. Mm-hmm. That's not gonna work. What is this piece about? You're just pouring bits of sugar from one glass to the next, what
6: the hell, you know? Yeah, because it definitely felt like a piece of everything had been taken away and just left yes. the...
0: Yeah, I knew, I, I knew that I had to throw everything in. It's like you've got your whole bag of detritus. Right. You've got, and you say, ah, I got this. And I want oh, this lighting and, ah, and costume. And, ah. Then also budget plays a massive part. <laughs> and then, oh, I can't afford this. So that's going to go. But also I thought, what? Well, it's a really serious piece. It doesn't need trappings. It needs truth. It needs simplicity. So it's so direct. And then it's raw, and it's and we're vulnerable, and we're dealing with the bodies, we're dealing with the space. It's site-specific because we're going to these different places. We ca- it can't be, you know, full Technicolor, Cecil B. DeMille kind of, you know, jazz hands and two, two four, six, eight. Kind of, it can't be that. It has to be stripped back, raw, bare, so that those experiencing it and coming on the journey can really be in it immediately. And so that's what, you know, it needed sifting and cutting away. And that's why it took the time to do that. And also it takes the time, so for those of you who create pieces, you know, to convince people to get behind the project. I mean, that's half the battle. That's why it takes long as well. Because, you know, oh, you're going to do a big, yeah, to do this piece on, you know, the relationship between the UK and, and the Caribbean through the uh, sugar trade and the Middle Passage and that transatlantic slave trade. And so. Oh, right, okay. Um, what else are you doing? What else are you trying <laughs> to do? you know?
3: Well, I this saw is the what people I... who would do that as well. Yeah. just
0: visual yeah. Just shutters, <laughs> bolt, 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 bolt. That's it. It's like, Which oh, oh, okay, right. Which is why, which is why um, you will not be surprised to know that Sweet Tooth was commissioned by a visual arts organisation. Not a music festival. And I say, I, mean, I say, I'm not even going to count Borealis in this because Borealis is kind of this strange thing that happens, right? <laughs> and it's experimental. So, you know, it's, it is Borealis. Yeah, yeah, right. And, but there are, some, there are those of you in this audience who will know what I'm talking about in terms of music festivals or a particular type of music in, musical institution who are terrified they want a level of engagement, but it needs to have icing, icing on the cake and sprinklers and some nice um, light uh, candles, you know, and they want it all to be neat because they don't want to scare anyone. Mm-hmm. If it's not presented in a particular way, they will not go near it because they're terrified of how their audiences will react. And do you know what, I want to see the terror you know, and I don't want to underestimate the reaction of an audience, mm. you know, and it's just, I think if particularly publicly funded institutions, they sh- need to get, get some, you know, I was going to get some balls. <laughs> 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 but you know what I mean, just our public money's going into it mm. and the public, I don't want to underestimate them, they see worse things out in the street than what I'm presenting. And we need to show the truth. We need to present truth, talk about, use, use this platform to talk about issues
4: mm.
0: and to not soft-soap them, really. Just don't be afraid of it. So, but I found that openness in visual arts. Mm-hmm. And I was grateful to Blue Coat, Stuart Hall Foundation, which doesn't provide funding, but they supported the project. It was a museum, International Slavery Museum, John Hansard Gallery, you know, I don't have relationships with these, but they didn't know me, you know, but they came along. They really supported it, and they didn't get in the way of it. They didn't come to an R&D sharing. say, like, oh, do you think that's... maybe? I don't know. I mean, I've heard some horror stories of composers, and I know what it's like to be on the other side of the desk because I used to promote composers, contemporary new music composers, Hey, um, don't judge me for that. <laughs> okay. So but I do know what it's like to be on the other side when someone comes to you with an idea and you're like, ah, oh, oh, but they, really it's like, oh, who's gonna, who's gonna commission this? Oh, it's only gonna get one performance. Ah, you know, I, I understand that, but I got really tired of feeling that way because if someone's really passionate about something, they've got an amazing idea, we should really support this, this work. And get behind it and enable, enable artists to make daring work. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a platform for entertainment and it's done brilliantly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love a musical now and again, you know, but it's just, <laughs> those people do it brilliantly, but we're talking about serious things and it can be, it, it doesn't always have to be heavy handed. There can be a lightness of it, so it can still be serious. So I don't think I answered your question, but was it part no, you of did the part that was sugar. stripping away? I, I had to make it bare and raw in
6: order. Yeah, to Yeah, no, it was nice. It work. was just really to get some exa- an example even yeah. of like what, like some of the the processes. I mean, maybe this thing about the sugar is not a nice example. Maybe it's for a conversation for later, but it's like yeah. a composer question. I think about what you went through. And to get to that point where it feels like it's very straightforward in a way, yeah. but actually it's very, very subtle.
0: I mean, even with, and I know we, we, we haven't got much time, but there was something else really before anybody knew about the piece. It was just myself, it was Dom, the choreographer, it was actually, it was just, and Jason actually was roped in really early on. And a friend gave us a space for free. And we were just working with, I was really interested in this thing, finding comfort in discomfort, terrible discomfort. And that was being bound up and being kept in a coffin-like space. And we spent time working physically with that. And that might be in another piece it's referenced in bound, but it started somewhere else. And so it, it wasn't, it didn't make the final cut, but even those things that you discard can be the kernel of another idea for something else that you need to explore. And that's, you know, these are the judgments that we make. Um, so I don't feel that it's a lost, you know, yeah. I've wasted any time, I, I've learned so much from it.
3: Yeah, can, I hope that was. Can I ask you a final question yes. before you wrap up? Because there's a festival happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh
0: sorry.
3: Um, um, oh what would you say? Because it it takes a lot to do this work. Yeah. As any kind of artist, mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. as a uh, a vocal artist or a musician. Yeah. Um, what would you say to the next generation coming? What kind of advice would you give them about taking a road that is about um, well, speaking hard truths? but also making a commitment to the future in our engagement with the past. Yeah, I think um, be brave, be bold. Do it
0: from a a place of of compassion and love as well. Because if if you don't, you'll end up being very cynical and bitter about things and that just stifles you, prevents you from creating. And really be honest to yourself about why you're doing it? There's a lot of anger in the world. We don't need to add to it, mm-hmm. but we can. If we are angry, we can use that anger and turn it into something that is very positive and enabling for everyone.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I'm hope I'm hoping that's what I, that's what I would advise, and not to be afraid. Because you know, don't fall, don't worry if people don't like the idea, you know, and don't worry if you don't like the idea. You know, some things do need to be abandoned because you think, actually, no, that's not the right direction, but actually it's opened up a possibility elsewhere. So just be open to those possibilities. Yeah.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank Thank you you very much. much. Thank you. And with that, I want to say thank you. To Temi Odomosu and Elaine Michener for an interesting and important conversation. To Bergen Public Library for hosting us and to the whole Borealis team for making an amazing festival happen. See you next month for another conversation from the Archive. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. That'll help us get the word out to more people about Borealis Santala. And for those of you who don't know, Samtala means conversation in Norwegian. ta